You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Hajun Chang, who is at SOAS University of London. I guess you are officially an economist, but you're also an historian, right? You've got a lot of different hats, and we'll have to dive into those different hats. But you're also the author of a number of books. The most recent book, which I think at some point in the book, you say that it is a very strange book. <laughs> it is a strange book. And that one is called Edible Economics, A Hungry Economist Explains the World. But of course, we've got a whole bunch of other ones. This one, uh, you know, this is a real gem. I'm going to have to figure out a way to assign this. It's called Economics, The User's Guide. And then 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. I think this came out right after the financial crisis. Then you got an older one called Bad Samaritans, which I think this was quoting your first book that was targeting a broader audience. And then this one, I think is your first book. It's called Kicking Away the Ladder, Development Strategy in Historical Perspective, which takes you to your roots as sort of a development economist. I guess that's your core. So w- welcome, Hajun. Well, thank you for having me. So in a number of your books, you make some interesting points. One of the points is that you don't need a professional to understand economics. You can kind of figure it out yourself. And it's kind of like the book on cooking because everyone can be a cook. You don't have to be, you don't have to go to Cordon Bleu to become a a cook. And I guess you don't have to go to University of London and get a PhD. And I was in the Uber yesterday and this guy asked me, he's picking me up from work and he was like, what do you do? And I said, I was an economist. And he said, well, you know, what is that? And like, what do you guys study? And I said, well, we study everything about human behavior. And then in your book, you say, no, 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 right? Economics is about the economy. It's not about everything. So how do you reconcile those two things? Because I think when I was reading the, the Edible Economics book, took a little bit more of an expansive view about how economics can inform everything, even sort of just, you know, when you, when you buy your food. Thank you. No, that, uh, that there are quite a few threads in what you have just said, uh, which is uh, wonderful. Yeah, first of all, I think that, you know, I keep uh, saying that uh, you don't have to be a professional economists in order to understand the economy, that this is not to devalue professional training. I mean, the the point is that we can have understanding of things at different levels, you know? So there are things that only trained professionals can understand, but that doesn't mean that other people cannot understand the main points of uh, economic arguments or that words that, that they shouldn't try to. Because I have uh, been on a kind of uh, the personal crusade, uh, which may be kind of described as a mass economic literacy campaign. Because I uh, have uh, over time realized that in a capitalist society, unless everyone understands some economics, democracy is meaningless. Yeah? Because so many of things are bound up in economic decisions, whether it's about the teaching of the Asian languages in universities or preservation of cultural heritage. You know, I've even met some British people who try to defend the monarchy by arguing that it brings in tourist revenue. You know, I'm not a monarchist, but what a demeaning way about that defending an institution that is supposed to be at the foundation of your society. It's come to that. So unless you understand economics, you don't actually understand how the world works now. And because people don't do that in elections, uh, that you are back in 2000, a lot of people 
in America voted for George W. Bush, uh, saying that he uh, looks like a kind of guy that you could have beer with. Yeah. You know, on that qualification, I could have become the president of the U.S. You know, I could have beer with anyone. Yeah. So basically, that unless we want to reduce the democratic politics to basically the talent show, you know, that everyone needs to understand some economics. So that, uh, I've been trying to write all this uh, the stuff about how we can understand the economy and how it is not uh, only the professions that can understand it. Now, uh, having said that, yes, I mean, the economics is, uh, in a way, impinging on everything. So that means that uh, when you talk about uh, economics, you actually get to talk about other things too. I, I try to define economics as uh, the study of the economy, not the application of economic logic to everything. There's a slight distinction between these two, which uh, may sound like uh, very uh, small, but it isn't because the one view says, uh, you know, that uh, more widespread view uh, says uh, that economics is about the way of thinking. Yeah? I mean, the rational choice, you know, how people that make a choice uh, on the constraints and so on. The, the other view that I'm advocating is, is a study of the economy, whether it that, uh, is about the rational choice or the, I don't know, economics of irrational wars or the, about the other aspects of the, our the material provision. Yeah? So the, there's a slight distinction here, but uh, which actually is that uh, in, in the end very important. But you know, what I, I would uh, like to say in this uh, regard is that uh, it's uh, one thing to say that economy has uh, implications for other things. It's another to say that economics is basically everything. Yeah? So the latter view, I that, that think that is uh, problematic because uh, that when this uh, view becomes dominant, as it is uh, in many societies these days, I mean that you basically that naturally that get to sub subject all the other areas uh, to economic logic, you know, which I think is uh, not a healthy thing, you know, that these uh, different spheres of life uh, that have to have uh, different kind of uh, domains and different logics and different priorities. But that uh, by saying that economics is uh, the supreme logic, we are actually forcing all these other things uh, that second to be secondary uh, to the calculations of profit and uh, prices and so on. And uh, I don't think it, that that is actually a healthy thing. Well, I think you might be selling yourself short because I think you also in the book are making the point. So it's not just that in order to be an informed voter and a good participant in society, you need to understand economics. But I think it, what you're arguing is that it can unlock a sense of wonder uh, about the, the ordinary in life, right? So, I mean, the, the book Edible Economics, you know, you have a chapter, each chapter is on a different food. And, you know, you, you start by talking about the food and then before you know it, you know, you're talking about development and international trade and stuff. And I think it gives a little window into your brain, right? Because, you know, you open the refrigerator, you see some garlic, and then your your mind just takes off, right? <laughs> and so so this analogy between cooking and economics, which I love because I, I love both fields as well. And, you know, one of them is that, you know, you can be an amateur cook. But the other is that economics needs to be more about sourcing from different places, right? And you, you described when you came to, to England from Korea, you described, well, there's two things. First of all, you had a very, very limited palate, which was very Korean. And the English had extremely limited palate. You, yeah, you called it more kind of mon limited. Yeah, yeah. But now, you, you know, in England, you, you can get Indian, you can get Korean, you can get Chinese, you can get world-class 
anything. And so while the world has become so much more curious about things like food, you argue that in the domain of economics, we've kind of less curious or more mono monocropping. That's right. No, I mean, that, that has been uh, quite an uh, experience. I mean, you know, when I first uh, came to Britain in 1986, uh, British food culture is so conservative. I mean, anything that remotely sounds foreign, that uh, they wouldn't eat. Yeah. But uh, for me, at least, uh, the epitome of that conservatism was this uh, pizza chain called Pizza Land, which gave customers an option to have their pizzas uh, topped uh, with uh, potatoes. Baked with filter, yeah. I like that. So it's like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I have uh, nothing against it, but yeah, you know, the thinking behind it was basically well, if you cannot deal with this uh, strange uh, foreign food called pizza, we are giving you a security blanket or hold on to your potatoes, yeah, and that uh, everything will be fine, yeah. But my theory is that uh, sometime in the late 1990s, the British people had collective epiphany, yeah. They realized that their food really sucks, yeah. And once they did that, actually, they became completely open-minded, you know. Once you abandon your own food, you know, why should you prefer Mexican over Korean or the prefer Turkish over Indian, you know, anything tastes fine. So the, as a result, the, now Britain has become one of the most exciting places to eat uh, in. I mean, the, the, you can, as you said, get anything of a world-class standard. And yeah, British food itself uh, has been upgraded because uh, it uh, had uh, has absorbed uh, all these uh, different influences. There have been uh, fusions. Uh, you know, someone told me that uh, in the British uh, city of Birmingham, there's a restaurant which sells uh, fusion Korean Peruvian food. You know, oh my God! You know, the Peruvian food itself is a fusion of but uh, you know Spanish food and. Inca food and Chinese food and Japanese food because they had a lot of indentured laborers that are from Japan and China in the late 19th, early 20th century and mixed the Korean food into that, you know, the mind boggles. Unfortunately, during this period, the reverse has been happening to my other world, that is the world of economics. You know, until the 70s, you had nine, ten major schools of economics, you know, it, could have been that 20 if you included some of the smaller schools, uh, split some of the big schools to sub-schools. And all these different schools were kind of proud of uh, their own traditions, but I uh, had to confront that, uh, each other, you know, the compete, you know, sometimes uh, kind of in a death match, yeah? like the debate between the Austrians and the Marxists in the 1920s and 30s. You know, sometimes uh, in a more uh, reasonable uh, conversation from uh, that, uh, which uh, they all uh, learn new things, you know, people try the uh, fusion theories, you know, that some, some people that try to mix uh, the Keynes' theory and Marxist theory, you know, in the uh, 1970s. And it was uh, really exciting, like the British uh, scene of the uh, food scene of today. Unfortunately, since the 80s, one school has uh, become dominant, this school called neoclassical economics. And, you know, I'm not saying that uh, that school is uh, particularly bad. Like all other schools, it has some tremendous uh, strengths and uh, some very important insights. But it uh, also has uh, shortcomings. I mean, all theories are like that because they were all developed in a particular context in order to study particular aspects of the economy. Yeah? So the neoclassical economics uh, is a theory of uh, market exchange. Yeah? 
essentially, you know, whereas uh, classical schools, uh, the Marxist schools, they were more interested in, say, production. Yeah? I mean, they all had uh, different theories of how the economy develops, uh, how it uh, seeks its uh, balance, yeah? And they all have uh, different uh, political and ethical assumptions. So each theory is uh, very good at explaining some things and uh, not very good at explaining the, uh, the others, you know? So that this means that dominance by one school means that our intellectual diet has become poorer, you know, because that uh, we now operate with one theory, which is uh, good at uh, doing some things, but not good at doing other things. Now, this is a very provocative thought, right? Because this is kind of saying that, you know, we should view something like economics more like, you know, art than, than science in a way, right? Because, in, you know, in the world of science, I don't think anybody would be comfortable with this idea that, well, you know, there's the Newtonian view and then there's the Einstein view and you know, yeah, they're, they're both equally good. Or, you know, there's Lamarck and there's Darwin and, well, you know, they're, they're just different ways of looking at the world. No, like we, we want to figure out how to blend and merge into a single view of things, right? And if, if electromagnetism and gravity don't seem consistent, that's a problem we want to solve. But I think you're kind of saying that Economics is different. You want to keep these separate schools. Now, is that another way of saying that the different schools or approaches might be like different keys for different locks, that they solve different problems? Or is it that, you know, none of them can on their own individually solve any specific problem and that ultimately you need to approach them from different perspectives? Yeah. No, no, that, that's a very elegant way of putting it. You know, well, basically my view is that the world is too complex too uncertain and human beings are so unpredictable that uh, we cannot have uh, the economics that, uh, that is scientific in the same way that physics or chemistry uh, is. You know, just think about it, you know, that subatomic particles do not say that, well, according to the theory, I'm supposed to behave in this way, but I'm not going to do that because it's unethical. Yeah? Chemical molecules do not say well, we are always uh, have always been moving in this way, but wouldn't the world be a better place if we went the other way? You know, that's what humans do. So that uh, you know, embedded uh, in human society are different visions of uh, what uh, is a good society, different ethical standards, you know, the different political positions. So this uh, makes it impossible to uh, turn economics into science in the way that physics and chemistry are, and. Actually, if you look at the real world, uh, all the successful uh, countries have been basically pragmatic countries that didn't stick to the, a particular ideology and did uh, whatever was uh, necessary uh, given their view of uh, what is a good society. So the ultimate example of this uh, is uh, Singapore. You know, the, when you read about Singapore in the standard economics books and the financial press, uh, you will only hear about this uh, free trade policy and this uh, welcoming attitude towards uh, foreign investors, which it has. But you will never be told that 90% of land in Singapore is owned by the government. Yeah? You will never be told that 85% of housing is supplied by the government-owned housing corporation. And a staggering 22% of GDP is produced by state-owned enterprises or what they call in that country government-linked corporations, GLCs, yeah? So I often challenge my graduate students, look, give me one economic theory. It doesn't matter what it is, that the neoclassical, Keynesian, Schumpeterian, Austrian. Give me one economic theory that can explain Singapore single-handedly. I bet that this is uh, the impossible, yeah? You that there's no such theory, yeah? Because uh, Singapore is uh, the product of uh, very uh, concrete, uh, pragmatic human decisions 
trying to that, uh, survive in a very particular conditions. You know, I mean, it's a, a city state with very limited land. So they realize that however much uh, they might believe in that uh, free trade, I mean, that you cannot have uh, free trade in land because uh, that, that, that will lead to that uh, concentration of ownership and there'll be political instability, which will uh, basically that, that destroy the economy. So they had to do that. Yeah. I mean, if uh, they were ideological like the Soviet Union was, you know, I mean, they would have uh, said, no, we are free market economy, we are not going to, yeah. Land is also that, uh, mostly owned by the government in Hong Kong, you know, that even during the British uh, colonial rule, it was uh, because in this uh, city states, I mean, unless you uh, stabilize the land situation, uh, you don't have but any chance of uh, that, uh, survival, yeah. So in this sense, I'm uh, a great believer of uh, what the former Chinese leader, Mr. Deng Xiaoping said. Uh, he famously said that I don't care whether the cat is black or white as far as it catches mice. Yeah? So that our goal, the mice catching, should be the building a good society. Of course, that uh, it has to be debated exactly what you mean by that. So, yeah, building a good society with everyone is uh, taken care of, everyone has a that, uh, opportunity that, to develop themselves yeah, and that, that we that collectively prosper. And to achieve that, uh, you might need uh, different policies, different theoretical tools and different schools of economics because uh, they all have their strengths and weaknesses and they have blind spots and, you know, shortcomings. That, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that even if you, in the end, that, uh, prefer one approach, I mean, knowing other approaches uh, that would be great, you know? You know, I mean, that, that if you only knew, I don't know, that Mexican food or Thai food, I mean, that you didn't believe that, that there could be nice food uh, without chili, you know? Yeah. Well, how do these schools differ from models, right? So it's within the neoclassical school, right? You learn about, say, a prisoner's dilemma, and then you learn about a lemon's problem, and then, you know, you learn about this, and you, all these different models. And there's no economist within the neoclassical school who would say, the whole world is a prisoner's dilemma. <laughs> They're going to say, well, you know, that helps you to describe certain scenarios. And then what your job as the economist is to kind of figure out which model does the best job of explaining, right, the phenomenon you're studying. But it seems like at the level of a school, right, economists don't think that way. They don't say, well, you know, this situation is best explained by the neoclassical school and this one is better explained by the Kate. like that's not usually how it works so yeah that's why it's not uh, one group of things are called schools and the other groups are called uh, models yeah you know i mean the other schools uh, use uh, models too you know the marxists have their own models the keynesians have to, their, their own models you know even the austrian school the, which usually is uh, the verbally presented without the mathematical equations has uh, that implicit uh, model yeah so we are talking about the differences in model, but uh, the differences between schools comes from more fundamental things like, uh, say, ethical assumptions. Yeah. So that, uh, for example, in that uh, if you belong to the, say, Marxist school, that you would uh, say that the interest of the entire working class is uh, the supreme goal, and individuals uh, that can be that uh, sacrifice. Yeah. Neoclassical economists would uh, accept that. So they would argue that uh, you can call a social change an improvement only if it hurts no one, you know, while making some people better off. You know? But then you could criticize that as well, uh, because uh, when you accept that uh, philosophical position, you basically have to uh, accept whatever the inequality and injustice uh, that exists in society, because uh, if the rich 
which at the elite that uh, refused to give away even a small fraction of their income to save uh, the starving children, you have to accept it because that uh, you cannot take things away from uh, some people without their consent. Yeah? So that these are the kind of very the fundamental ethical differences. Also, they have different models about, uh, sorry, theories about uh, how the economy behaves. Yeah? So, the, for example, in the neoclassical theory, the competition mainly happens uh, through prices. Yeah? So you increase your efficiency, you the, offer the cheaper things, you win the market share. You know? Joseph Schumpeter, the, the founder of uh, the Schumpeterian school, argued that that kind of competition, of course, that, that is uh, important, but there is uh, like, uh, say, some, someone forcing a door, the, you know, say, urban of warfare. Yeah? And uh, my theory of innovation, my theory that uh, competition mainly happens uh, through innovation, is uh, like an uh, avian bombardment. Yeah? I mean, uh, this uh, price competition is uh, that, I mean, that's so insignificant uh, compared to what I'm talking about. This is not the, uh, how the economy works. Yeah? So these are some very fundamental uh, differences in the outlook. Uh, also, neoclassical the, the school assumes that uh, human beings are fundamentally uh, rational yeah? and usually selfish. Yeah? I mean, the behavioralists, uh, the institutionalists, uh, they would argue that no, human beings are far more complex. Yeah? They have uh, multiple motives. You know, that some economists that uh, have debated this issue of multiple self, you know, so that, that within our own brain, uh, there are like three you know, different guys living. I mean, yeah, that uh, many uh, Disney cut uh, animations have uh, the angels standing on one that, uh, shoulder, yeah, devil standing on another, yeah. We are uh, complex, yeah. And they would argue that there's no such thing as uh, human nature as it is assumed in neoclassical economics because we are all products of uh, history, particular cultures and so on. So that, that it's uh, that, uh, impossible to say that this or that is uh, the human nature. Yeah? So once again, I mean, these are debatable things. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that one is uh, necessarily correct and the others are necessarily incorrect, but these are big differences in the fundamental outlook which are not about yeah you know, exactly how you model things yeah uh -huh. well how do you how do you explain this i mean we understand how the cavendish banana took over and like every banana is <laughs> right. is the same and there's like you know 800 types of bananas but th how did this process occur i mean why did how did these schools get squeezed out i mean when i teach um innovation i i realize that i'm i'm actually channeling you know schumpeter and when i teach behavioral finance i realize i'm channeling you know the behavioralist stuff. When I, when I teach, uh, you know, microeconomics, I'm, I'm doing neoclassical stuff and maybe business schools are a little bit more pluralistic, but how did this happen? I mean, is it just the nature of the way in which academics are rewarded? Is it, is it the nature or is it more to do with a, is there a bigger picture here? And I think, you know, you argue that there's this, there's this tie between normativity and positivity. So this is your, by economists are, you know, they're not engaging in pure intellectual exercises trying to explain the world, but that there are these policy implications. And maybe you start with the policy and then work backwards. I mean, is it that? Is it like the normativity of the Washington consensus that kind of created a demand for this type of thinking? Or is it more, you know, just the logic of academic specialization? No, I think uh, there are uh, many different things uh, working here. But, uh, you know, uh, someone uh, told me that the reason why the United States has that uh, 
freedom of speech are embedded in its uh, constitution is because uh, without people actually willing to express uh, different opinions, democracy uh, withers, you know, because uh, we all have the hard instinct, you know, if uh, someone gets powerful, we uh, just tend to accept uh, whatever that person is saying. So it, uh, you deliberately need to uh, uh, create uh, disputes and debate uh, in order to uh, uh, have a healthy uh, democracy. And I think it's uh, a very important point, yeah. So in the academia, unless you make uh, deliberate attempts uh, to have a diversity of opinion, it uh, will uh, become uh, homogenized, yeah? Because uh, it's that uh, if uh, that, uh, you have different groups with fundamentally different outlook, and uh, if you let uh, one group decide who's uh, a good one, the dominant group in the former Soviet countries, it was the Marxists, yeah? So that, that there, that people might study neoclassical economics, uh, Keynesian economics, but only to criticize them, yeah? Because that, that you have to be Marxist, yeah? In the capitalist that, that countries that for various reasons uh, that I cannot fully go into, I'll, I'll mention one or two reasons, neoclassical school has uh, that, uh, became dominant. And then once it became dominant, it uh, started pushing out all the schools because uh, from their point of view, the, these other schools are not even economics, yeah? or a very sloppy way of thinking. Yeah? They think that there's one particular right way of doing research on the economy, and uh, if you uh, don't follow that, uh, you are not qualified. Yeah? So uh, unfortunately, there's uh, this uh, homogenizing tendency in the academia but also the reason why the neoclassical school has become quite dominant is uh, because it is uh, kinder to the existing social order than the other schools. You know, the, for example, going back a bit in the U.S. Uh, until the 1930s and 40s, actually the dominant school of economics was not neoclassical school. It was the institutionalist school. Yeah? People that uh, wrongly say that, oh, the New Deal was a uh, Keynesian policy. No, New Deal was not Keynesian. It was uh, basically inspired by the American institutionalist school, followers of uh, the Norwegian American uh, economist Thorstein Bevelin, yeah? John Commons, I think. Yeah, and the uh, Commons and Wesley Mitchell and these people. And uh, if you look at the, actually the, the New Deal the, the policies, Okay, there was a bit of deficit spending, but it wasn't about uh, macroeconomics. It was about institutional reform, yeah? So there was the Social Security Act, uh, there was the Wagner Act, uh, which uh, gave power to the trade unions. You know, that, uh, you had the Glass-Steagall, which uh, separated the investment banks uh, from commercial banks, you know? And, and that uh, you, you set up the Securities uh, Commission, yeah? So it was uh, the institutional reform, and neoclassical economics is uh, not that keen on institutional reform, not to speak of Marxist uh, class uh, the war and revolution, because uh, as I said earlier, I mean, their philosophy, which is known as the uh, idea of uh, Pareto optimality and Pareto improvement, is uh, based on this notion that uh, you cannot call the uh, social change that uh, hurts anyone an improvement. Yeah? Now, this is a very important principle uh, to defend individual rights against uh, the tyranny of the majority. Yeah? Because if you're not careful, if you begin to say, well, th we are doing this uh, for the greater good, yeah? so uh, why can't we sacrifice one person yeah, for the benefit of 8 billion people? Yeah? A lot of people will say, yes, uh, we should do that. Yeah? But what if uh, that one person becomes uh, 10,000? 
and the 1 million and 10 million. Yeah? So, I mean, this uh, Pareto that idea is that uh, very important uh, defense against uh, the tyranny of majority. But as I said earlier, I mean, uh, it uh, is a fundamentally very conservative view of the world, yeah? because you basically accept the existing distribution of income, wealth, and power. And then you uh, try to see whether you can improve things uh, within that framework yeah? without hurting anyone. Yeah? So this uh, is a, a quite a comforting approach to the world, uh, to the elite uh, who benefit uh, from this status quo. And I think that uh, that was another reason why, uh, instead, of, uh, in addition to the logical but uh, academic uh, ideological uh, homogenization, that was another reason why this uh, school got so much support. Once uh, the, in the 80s, the so-called neoliberal the revolution happened and the uh, ruling elite that uh, which uh, had been kind of uh, more careful that uh, in what they do that because of uh, the confrontation with the Soviet Union, the rise of the trade union movement, when they got the upper hand, they basically didn't want to hear too many things that, that were criticizing the status quo. So that this is another important reason why neoclassical school became so dominant. Well, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a cynical view in your work where Keynes said that we're all kind of slaves to some prior generation of economists. But I think you're, you're implying that economists may be slave to political economy, right? In the sense that, you know, there, there's a there's a there's a demand for certain ways of thinking. And I think, you know, your book that you wrote right after the financial crisis, you know, I think implied that. And I certainly remember right before the financial crisis, I mean, anybody who was in the world of finance, we all had, you know, justifications and explanations for why unfettered, you know, deregulated financial markets were such a great thing. Now, it's not to say that economists are in the pay of big banks or anything like that. And it's not to say that, you know, if you're a tenured professor writing articles for the AER, you're in, you're in the pay of the the, the people who benefit from globalization. But I think, you know, th there's something to that, right? And let's turn maybe to your discussion of development economics. You know, you wrote this book called Kicking Away the Ladder, right? which is sort of, you know, once a country becomes developed, you're arguing that they kind of try to prevent the other countries that haven't yet developed from becoming developed and denying them the... Um, yeah, the tools uh, they have, yeah, had used uh, themselves, yeah. Yeah. So th this would imply that the, the developed world benefits in some way from, you know, preventing the developed world from joining them in the ranks. I was wondering if you could dig into this a little bit and, and how does a historical view help you to better understand, you, you talk about development economics and economic history and how they're kind of two sides of the same coin. I've always thought that I was motivated to study history by an interest in development economics. The book Kicking the Ladder uh, puts uh, our current development discussion into historical perspective. Yeah? So uh, at least in the last 40 years, uh, the prevailing uh, view has been that uh, free trade, uh, deregulated markets, uh, prevalence of but, uh, private ownership, these are things uh, that are good for economic development. Yeah? But uh, when you look at uh, the history of today's rich countries, you find that they use almost exact opposite what, of uh, what they were recommending. You know, the, in the 18th century, when the Britain was uh, still a second-rate economy the, relying on the export of uh, raw materials, uh, the, namely the wool, the, to 
or then the manufacturing, uh, high-tech manufacturing uh, central by Europe, uh, the low countries, what uh, Belgium and the Netherlands are today, which was uh, the center of uh, the woolen manufacturing. I mean, basically, Britain had to uh, introduce a lot of uh, protectionism to protect uh, the weaker domestic producers that uh, from uh, superior foreign producers uh, gave a lot of subsidies to these guys. Yeah? And then uh, when the, the, they became the world's uh, top uh, industrial nation, it started uh, preaching free trade uh, to other countries. Yeah? So this uh, the passage that uh, kicking the ladder comes from the 19th century German economist that uh, Friedrich List, who said, uh, look at the British, uh, tell us the Germans and the Americans, uh, the two countries that uh, very much identified with each other at the time to practice free trade. But uh, when you look at the British history, when did they uh, start practicing free trade? Only after the country became the dominant industrial power. Yeah? So this is like uh, someone that uh, using all the, the, a ladder to climb to the top and kicking the ladder away uh, so the other people cannot reach the top. And very interestingly, that uh, it wasn't uh, List uh, who invented uh, this theory known as uh, theory of uh, infant industry protection, namely the argument that the governments of economically backward nations uh, need to protect and nurture their new industries in the same way that we protect and nurture children until they grow up and can compete in the other labor market. The guy who invented that theory was known other than the very first finance minister or what uh, you guys call the treasury secretary of the United States of America, Alexander Hamilton. Yeah? The Hamilton the actually wrote this uh, the famous uh, report uh, called the report on the subject of manufacture by the treasury secretary. And he submitted to the U.S. Congress. And I the, the, the say that was uh, the very first systematic development planning document in human history. No, the guy was amazing. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was, uh, as well as that uh, we can tell from the musical that he was a uh, kind of arrogant bastard, but that, uh, you know, in terms of his economics, he was uh, brilliant because that uh, he was not just talking about protecting what he called uh, industries in their infancy uh, against uh, the British and other European competition. He was uh, talking about the uh, development of government bond market. You know, he was uh, talking about uh, establishing some kind of central bank. You know, I mean, he was uh, talking about the patent system, the uh, investment in infrastructure. You know, so he he came up with this uh, vision of the uh, economic development, which uh, was uh, actually repeatedly used by other countries, you know, the, the late 19th century Germany, Sweden, you know, uh, later in the 20th century, France, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, yeah, which are basically call for the use of active uh, government uh, intervention, you know, the trade protection, you know, regulation against foreign uh, investment, uh, investment in the infrastructure, you know, the violation of the intellectual property rights because uh, as a uh, nation uh, trying to catch up, you need to basically steal technologies from others, you know. And yeah, I mean, the historical record is actually the amazing. I mean, the almost every country, at least for substantial periods of the early development, used the such policies. But the, now the so-called Washington Consensus uh, that says uh, that you shouldn't uh, use those policies. You know, that Charles Kindleberg, the eminent uh, economic historian uh, who uh, wrote endorsement uh, for my book, uh, Kicking the Ladder, that a few years uh, before he passed away, that said uh, this book is uh, the 
pointing out the hypocrisy of the rich countries, which are saying, do as I say, not as I did. So, very good. Well, you know, so you reference a lot the Asian tigers, and in particular, you, you reference Korea, right? Which, of course, you have firsthand experience of the Korean story. And I think a lot of people don't realize how poor Korea actually was, right? And even compared to countries like the Philippines, right? I mean, Korea was, was really dirt poor. And the policies that they used to, you know, escape from that poverty were certainly not ones that would be endorsed today by the IMF or the World Bank, right? In 1961, the Korea's per capita was $90. Yeah? In the same year, the Philippines had $200. It was actually the second richest nation in Asia. In the same year, the, the Ghana had $190 per capita income. Senegal had $350. Or was it 320? Yeah, thereabout. Yeah. So it was actually one of the poorest countries in the world. I mean, I was born in 1963. In that year, Korea's life expectancy was 53 years old. Sorry, 53 years. Yeah. According to that, I should be dead. You've already beat it. Yeah, exactly. I beat it by seven years. Yeah, I'm going to turn 60 this year. So, you know, it was one of the poorest countries. And yeah, the, there was no way that they could directly compete with uh, foreign uh, companies, uh, given the low level of uh, its uh, technology and uh, skills. So yes, I mean, it uh, started with the lowest of the lowest. Yeah? I mean, uh, we were making wig for American ladies. Yeah? I mean, uh, apparently at the time, technology was uh, such that you had to plant each strand of uh, hair onto whatever you uh, put on. Uh, when you are wearing a wig and uh, it could be done only in the cheapest uh, labor country, which uh, Korea was uh, one of, yeah. And uh, we were uh, making stuffed toys uh, for American uh, department stores. We were making the trainers, you know, at uh, one point in the, yeah, this was actually in the 80s, uh, much later than uh, when uh, Korea started its uh, development trajectory in the early 60s. Uh, in the 80s, uh, at one point, Nike was uh, manufacturing 90% of his shoes in Korea. Yeah. yeah. But I remember, I remember buying Korean sneakers when I was a kid. I think Osaka was the name of the, sh the sneaker. Uh, it started like that, but uh, it uh, had a uh, big ambition. Uh, so it uh, slowly moved into higher productivity, higher technology industries. And in order to make them work, uh, it uh, provided that uh, very strong trade protection, you know, subsidized uh, bank loans uh, from, well, I mean, at the time, but basically all the banks were that, uh, owned by the government and uh, a lot of other support in terms of uh, research and development, you know, export marketing, worker training. Yeah, so the most uh, dramatic example is that uh, the Korean car company Hyundai, which uh, is now quite prevalent that uh, even in the U.S. I mean, uh, now it's uh, the third largest auto manufacturer in the world. You know, when uh, Hyundai started this, uh, well, production of its uh, own model, because uh, before that it was uh, importing this uh, Ford model, then kind of, yeah, that, uh, putting together these uh, knockdown kits, yeah. But uh, when it uh, started its, the production of its uh, first own model in 1976, it produced uh, 10,000 cars. Yeah? In the same year, Ford produced 1.9 million cars. General Motors uh, produced 4.8 million. Yeah? So that it was uh, producing 0.5% of Ford, 0.2% of uh, General Motors. Yeah? So just imagine if I took a time machine, went back to 1976 and told people, look, uh, there's this uh, two-bit car company 
which uh, produces uh, 0.5% of Ford, 0.2% of uh, General Motors in this uh, low middle-income country called Korea. But give it just over three years, uh, it will be bigger than Ford. In less than 40 years, it will be bigger than General Motors. I mean, they would have put me in a mental institution. Yeah? I mean, there's no way this uh, could have happened mm-hmm. that uh, if you looked at it uh, from the vantage point of view of uh, 1976. Yeah? But this uh, happened, I mean, of course, uh, partly because the company invested so heavily in developing technologies and training workers, but that also that uh, it uh, happened only because uh, the government completely banned the importation of any foreign cars until 1988. And Banned the importation of uh, Japanese cars, uh, which were particularly kind of overlapping with uh, Korean cars at the time, until 1998. Yeah? And that uh, it gave a huge amount of uh, subsidies, uh, especially for export to the car company and other companies. And yeah, I mean, this is uh, in a way the, a more refined and aggressive version of Hamilton's theory. Yeah? So once again, I mean, uh, uh, this uh, the experience of Korea really proves uh, that uh, you need a combination of private sector entrepreneurship and government industrial policy to have a uh, successful economy. And that uh, my kick in the ladder shows that that is actually the trajectory that almost all the countries travel you know, in order to get uh, where they are. The, almost all the rich countries of today, sorry, that travel uh, in order to get uh, where they are today. Well, now Korea is not uh, run like that anymore, right? Korea more closely resembles like a European or American country in terms of its balance of, you know, what you might think of as central planning and and the market. And so if there's a different kind of medicine for the adult and, and the child, right? Why then do we want to administer adult medicine to children? I mean, if we look at a country like Argentina, for instance, they've tried import substitution. They've tried a lot of this stuff. And I think that, you know, if you're part of the Washington consensus, you would point to Argentina rather than pointing to Korea and say, look, this is why you don't want to do this stuff, right? How would they explain the differences and how would they yeah, yeah. explain yeah, the Korean uh, story? Yeah, for the kind of universal uh, prescription of the same drug to everyone, I think that's uh, actually not an accident. That comes from this uh, the view that economics is an exact science, eh? So that whether it's uh, the Ghana or the United States, uh, free trade is good. Yeah. Well, free trade is good actually uh, in the short run for everyone. Yeah. Trouble is that that, that if you keep doing free trade, I mean that the economically backward countries will be basically stuck uh, where they are. Yeah. So you you need that uh, different medicine for different people. But uh, since uh, most uh, economists uh, these days uh, believe that there's only one correct policy for everyone, they keep giving the wrong uh, medicine. In the 1960s and 70s, per capita income in Latin America grew at 3.1% per year. In the next 40 years, it grew at 0.8%, despite all these good policies of trade liberalization, the privatization of state-owned enterprises and so on. You know, in the 60s and 70s, Per capita income in Africa grew at the rate of 1.6%. Okay, I mean, quite low compared to Latin America, not to speak of East Asia, which uh, during that period grew at uh, 6% per year. Well, 1.6% is uh, not a joke. That's uh, actually slightly higher than the rate at which Britain grew during 
the so-called industrial revolution. Yeah? In the next uh, 40 years, uh, per capita income growth in Africa collapsed to 0.83% per year, yeah? which means that uh, at the end of that 40-year uh, period, per capita income in Africa was uh, only 6% higher than what it was in 1980. You know, China used to grow at uh, that much uh, in half a year, you know. It's a uh, total uh, failure, but unfortunately, the uh, Washington institutions uh, have failed to see this. I mean, now I think uh, there, there's a recognition that uh, it, at least that uh, hasn't worked as well as uh, they thought uh, it would. And yeah, especially the International Monetary Fund, uh, I see, uh, has become rather more critical of what uh, it used to do. That, so it's a, a positive development, but this is stemming from this idea that uh, there's only one correct policy because the economics is science, you know, that, that you cannot have a different kind of economics for different countries, uh, which is uh, deeply uh, troubling. Now, yes, uh, the, like everything, you know, this kind of the development model has failed uh, in many countries, but that's uh, in the nature of things, no? I mean, uh, we tell people, yeah, you should uh, study hard, go to university, and then that uh, you will have a better life, you know? Well, lots of people that go to university and don't have a better life, but that doesn't prove that people still uh, shouldn't go to universities uh, because uh, these guys must have done something wrong, yeah? So if you look at the countries like Argentina, their biggest mistake was uh, to believe that they would just live off uh, the basically second-rate technology yeah. by uh, protecting their industries. Yeah? You cannot do that. I mean, you have to keep up with the uh, international technologies. So in Korea, even though there was a lot of protection, the protection was uh, in order that you raise uh, your companies to keep up with the global standard, yeah? which is actually the idea of uh, infant industry protection. Yeah? It's uh, not, the uh, infant interest uh, protection is uh, not saying that you should protect forever, yeah? Cut ties with the rest of the world, yeah? Then you become North Korea, yeah? Infant industry protection is uh, uh, saying that you should do this exactly in order that your producers can become world-class, yeah? The Argentina and uh, many other uh, developing countries that uh, failed to have that goal, and also uh, when they were implementing these policies, they didn't discipline the recipients of the protection and subsidies as much as uh, Korea or the Japan did, yeah? because you had to deliver in terms of export performance, uh, productivity growth, you know, uh, investment in that uh, research and development in countries like Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. Yeah? In many uh, other developing countries, uh, these uh, protection and subsidies became freebies, basically. Yeah? You get all this uh, support and then uh, you don't perform and then uh, you keep asking for the subsidies. You know? So they look uh, similar, but there were some very big uh, important differences. So do it right, that's uh, the answer. Yeah? Rather than saying, you know, since uh, some people, actually probably even majority of people who yeah, uh, went to university didn't uh, make it to the top, that everyone should uh, stop going to university. Yeah? Well, I think even within the neoclassical paradigm, people have begun to appreciate, certainly in the world of development, the importance of institutions, right? So whether it's courts and property rights and intellectual property and rule of law and so forth. And, you know, without those, then a lot of the policies fail. But I think your, your point is that to think that those are preconditions and you have to have them kind of well-established before growth can happen. I, I think your point is that in some sense, those are more a consequence of growth than a cause of growth. 
Yeah, this is a uh, very uh, kind of uh, complicated and delicate uh, matter. But uh, of course, uh, you need that some basic institutions, yeah, of property and governance and so on, the, the economy to function at all. So if you have, uh, I don't know, the country ruled by warlords or the country where the government doesn't even control the half of its uh, territory, then, uh, yeah, you cannot have development. But unfortunately, the people have pushed this uh, too far and uh, the start is saying that you need to first reform the institutions, then you will grow, yeah? I mean, uh, this is that, uh, you know, once again, uh, you, you have to uh, read people like, uh, you know, Veblen and Collins and, I mean, even Marx and uh, Hayek uh, to understand that uh, institutions do not change uh, the, like that, yeah? I mean, uh, it takes uh, that uh, resource, uh, it takes uh, time, it takes uh, that changes in the people's behavior for these uh, institutions uh, to work. So, I mean, you cannot uh, say that, well, we'll wait until the institutions uh, develop, yeah? Because, yeah, it's something like, I don't know, the, you are in a the long distance uh, car race, yeah? Your car is uh, secondhand, outdated, yeah? So are you going to then park the car in one place and uh, basically live there for the next uh, 30 years until you collect enough money to, to buy a new car? No, I mean, that way uh, you will never uh, succeed in the race, yeah? I mean, you have to drive this car but uh, somehow find a way to, you know, to, uh, improvise, you know, improve bits and pieces with a li little bit of money that you might have uh, made uh, the, while the, everyone else was uh, sleeping, you know. The, maybe, yeah, you can you know, stop for a few days uh, to do some uh, seasonal the labor to collect a bit of money to buy a new, I don't know, the brake pad. So the, you have to take it in a the more pragmatic way. I mean, I uh, often describe as an institutionalist uh, economist, and uh, I, I believe that the institutions are uh, extremely important, but it's viewed that somehow you have to have a Cadillac uh, before you can even start the race. I think it's uh, putting the cart before the horse, uh, so to speak, partly because, uh, as you uh, implied, uh, there's a two-way causality. Eh? I mean, the institutions of course, uh, help economic development, but uh, with economic development, you can afford to have uh, better institutions, yeah? because uh, these institutions are costly to run. You know? I mean, uh, if you want to protect uh, property rights, you need a proper uh, court system, yeah? you need uh, all that uh, kind of uh, records office, yeah? you need the police, you, know, the, you need uh, a lot of resources that, uh, to run these things uh, properly. So the economic development actually helps you have uh, better institutions. Yeah? So that uh, you need to kind of uh, consider that uh, causality as well as that there being uh, no time uh, to sit in one place for 30 years and uh, try to earn money to buy a Cadillac. Yeah? You have to somehow you know, drive your that, uh, second rate tin can car while keeping improving the car uh, during the race. I think it takes us back to the notion of linkages, right? So, you know, when we think of linkages in development economics, we're usually thinking about linkages between industries, but there's a linkage between the private sector and the public sector, right? Between the institutions and the, and the industry. Well, I want to, I want to end with this discussion of edible economics, because you said in the book that when you were a kid, your mom wouldn't even let you in the kitchen. Right? So Yeah. Well, my mom did, but uh, most uh, Korean moms wouldn't. Yeah. So how did you start cooking? How did that, I mean, you know, when you were in England, you, you realized that if you were going <laughs> to, if you're going to have anything tasty, you had to do, do it yourself. You know, right? my mom was uh, not super conservative, so uh, I could do some very basic things like making sandwiches, uh, fried rice, you know, 
but yeah, of course, I mean, the most Korean the men of uh, my generation, I mean, they never cooked, uh, I mean, the food in the kitchen the, in their life. So yeah, when I moved to Britain, I mean, the food was so horrible. I mean, I had to do something because, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that when you're in your 20s, you know, you can deal with a lot of bad food, you know, because you are hungry all the time. And But uh, yeah, there's a limit to what I could take. Uh, so yeah, I uh, started uh, recreating some of the dishes uh, that my mom used to cook. And so I slowly developed uh, my cooking skill, but the real change came when I got married. Uh, seven years after the, I uh, moved to Britain, uh, my wife uh, arrived to join me in Cambridge uh, where I was uh, teaching then. And she couldn't believe that I had uh, a dozen cookbooks that, uh, for which I never cooked. Because I loved uh, reading cookbooks, yeah? So she said, well, if you're not going to cook from this, I'm going to throw them away. So the, I the, sprang into action and I started uh, using these cookbooks. And yeah, I realized that I really love cooking. I mean, I find it that uh, very therapeutic. So the, I, I that, uh, started that kind of uh, experiment, experimenting with various food. And then I also, the, given the nature of my work, I uh, started uh, traveling a lot to foreign countries, especially you know the Mexico, Brazil. I mean, I, I encountered so many different foods there, and I mean that uh, I, I became even more uh, interested in the cooking and eating and food in general. And yeah, I mean, uh, thirty years later, we have this book. <laughs> well, what's interesting about cooking, from my perspective, is that each cuisine has sort of its own logic, right? So, you know, sometimes people ask me what, what I like to cook and I love Italian, I love French, I like Turkish, I like Persian, whatever. So they each have their own coherent logic. But if, you know, if you're not a purist about it, then you can, you can kind of arbitrage ideas across these different schools. And, and it made me think about how you think about economics and the different schools of economics. Now, if you took all of those schools and you just blended it together, then you just have like a big mishmash and it wouldn't really be too particularly interesting. Right. But on the other hand, you know, if you're a purist and, and I know like, you know, in, in places like Italy, they're very purist. Oh, no, no, no. You, you can't, you can't put onions in an amatriciano, you know, you can't put cheese on fish and they're very dogmatic. But when you come to America or in the UK, as you mentioned, it's like, well, you know, let's, let's do like yeah, Korean Mexican. Uh, there's so this right. uh, very interesting restaurant called Korean Dinner Party, uh, which, uh, in London, uh, which, uh, which mm -hmm. is uh, run by two chefs, uh, and. From their name, I can see the ones that uh, Latino, uh, Latina, uh, and the others are Chinese, and uh, they do basically fusion of Korean and Mexican food. You know, it, uh, it's great. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, but uh, you're right. I mean, if you are not, if you don't fully understand the idioms of each cuisine, I mean, your attempt to create fusion will end up as uh, dog's breakfast. Yeah. I mean, it's not actually very e easy <laughs> to create uh, fusion food yeah. because uh, you really need to understand these uh, different schools of cooking well before you can actually say, yeah, actually we can lift this part and transport it to another uh, cuisine and then make it work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, sometimes it's uh, brilliant, sometimes it's uh, not so good. Yeah. So do you, do you think we can change the way economics is taught? I mean, you know, I can imagine a PhD program where in your first year, instead of just jumping right into, you know, micro and game theory and so forth and econometrics, you know, we, we could have something like maybe a survey course where you, you get exposed to these different schools or, you know, do you think that would be helpful in seeding new approaches and more heterogeneity? You know, in the mid 1980s, when I was uh, trying to choose uh, my graduate course, all the, well, not 
maybe not literally all, but almost all the American economics department in their PhD program had at least one of the uh, history of economic thought and economic history as yeah, a compulsory yeah. paper. Yeah? I mean, some universities are demanded mm -hmm. both. Yeah? yeah, so this kind of knowledge about the history of the subject, the uh, major debates, uh, you know, ma uh, main differences uh, between the different schools, it used to be a requirement, yeah, that not just an option, yeah. Well, you couldn't staff them nowadays because you you need to staff it with a specialist, and those specializations, those specializations have kind of disappeared. But if you made somebody who is a specialist in, say, you know, applied micro, you know, rotate through that course, it could potentially help them to generate new ideas for for their work. Yeah, right? and that could also co-teach. You know, I mean, that uh, maybe you recruit, uh, uh, say, the uh, macroeconomists and uh, microeconomists and development economists and try to kind of uh, ask them to uh, teach uh, certain schools that they have uh, better knowledge of. Uh, maybe not they subscribe to the schools, but at least uh, they'll be able to. Yeah, so I think that uh, when, uh, I mean, I in the last 10 years, at least, I've been campaigning with uh, university students in Britain, in the US, in Brazil, and uh, a few other countries to promote the, uh, what we call the pluralism in economics yeah so we asking universities uh, to teach this other stuff yeah okay i mean that uh, there can be one dominant school but at least uh, tell people that there are these other ways of thinking about it yeah at least hire some faculty who do uh, things differently i mean we have uh, made a uh, little inroad uh, but uh, we keep banging at the door and yeah when you do that actually uh, you will uh, create uh, more kind of a diverse uh, way of uh, understanding the world, then I think it will uh, make the subject uh, better uh, rather than worse. Unfortunately, when we oh. ask uh, for that, uh, the typical response is, well, we haven't got time, yeah? I mean, that uh, we have uh, limited space in the timetable, the curriculum, and uh, we can uh, teach all these other stuff. But, uh, you know, I think uh, that's uh, the rather feeble excuse because, uh, the, you know, A, the, you can make room, yeah? I mean, that economics uh, students are spending so much time doing math, you know. I mean, that, that now, especially with the development of uh, artificial intelligence, that probably that uh, modeling isn't going to be a very useful skill. That, uh, so chat GPT, right, right, solve your problems, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that you'd uh, cut down on some of the, the other things that are, in the, my view, overdone. And also, the, we are not uh, saying that, you know, the, all schools have to have uh, equal uh, time, you know. I mean, yeah, at least a uh, history of economic thought or, the, you know, one or two courses uh, that cover institutionalist uh, economics or the Keynesian economics uh, rather than the standard micro-macro econometrics uh, kind of setup. But basically, these are excuses because uh, that these people don't want to do that. So uh, let's hope that uh, more economists uh, see sense in the demands and make uh, economics uh, a bit uh, more diverse, uh, a bit uh, richer in understanding. Well, Hajun, thanks so much for joining me. This new book called Edible Economics, if there were still <laughs> physical bookstores, I'm not really sure where, where which shelf <laughs> they would put this on, right? You know, the economics or, or food. And now I got to figure out what shelf I'm going to put it on. Uh, but also this one, Economics, a user's guide. This is actually, this is a really fun book. And and uh, and, and I hope uh, more and more people Thank will you. will go and, and, and check it out. And of course, all, all the older books. So appreciate joining me. Hopefully I'll see you again sometime soon. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.